Hi, everybody. It's Kirk Henderson with uh, Kirk Your Enthusiasm. Today, I'm joined by a shockingly old friend in Rob Mahoney. Rob, how are you today? I'm doing great and shockingly old. Yeah, yeah. We discovered that the other day when uh, Rob was talking about one of his old pieces uh, that he used to do called Have Ball, Will Travel. <laughs> and it's been like eight or nine years since the last one of those went up on the internet. Well, so for those of you who don't know Rob, you're bad at this because Rob has been a staff writer at The Ringer for how long now? Uh, Almost a year now. Almost a year now. And then he spent the previous seven or eight years at Sports Illustrated uh, where he was a staff writer. He's author of the 2011 uh, Mavericks Stampede. Dirk leads Dallas to 2011 NBA Championship. I went and dug it off my bookshelf so I couldn't remember <laughs> the title. Uh, I met Rob. Uh, well, basically, I was a commenter on your first website, the Two Man Game of uh, True Hoop Network. And then one uh, day, when he didn't want to cover a game, he asked if I could. Which, so if you want to blame somebody for why I'm doing this now, it is literally Rob's fault. I will take all the responsibility and everything that comes with it. It's fun. Well, let's just get right to the Mavs stuff. So it's been this is it's been such a long season uh, at this point where we just wrapped up the 2019-20 season, and you know I want to talk about the bubble specifically, but before that, I'd almost like to go back to to really the the season that up until March. So what what was you know your takeaway for the Mavericks for the 2019-20 season relative to what you remember expectations being? Hmm. I'm trying to remember where the expectations were kind of set at the start of the year. Obviously, you know, high hopes for Luka Doncic, certainly, and the hopes of, you know, getting Chris Stapps Porzingis for a full season. I remember being very excited about that. And I think that part of it went even better than expected, just in terms of their fit, especially, you know, they had to grow into it a little bit over the year, KP in particular. But I think where they ended up is a very healthy place when you're talking about franchise building blocks and how this team is going to be moving forward. They still have some clear needs. But I think they they still kind of ended up where I thought they would be, which is a team that has two really talented players, a lot of capable role players around them, and kind of an open question night to night as to whether those role players are going to be up to the challenges presented them. Well, your your colleague, Jonathan Sharks, who came on uh, last week, had a, I want to say, late October piece that discussed uh, how the Mavericks essentially unlocked Luka Doncic, how he went from being a you know potential all-star candidate to being a potential MVP candidate. And it was really focused on basically placing the ball in Luka's hands and getting out of the way. Do, In your opinion, do you think Luka having the ball this much is good for his development? And what about you know sort of the team? Is the team best served with him being this ball dominant? Yeah, I mean, those are those are two very big and in a lot of ways, very different questions. I think in terms of the team composition, it really depends on what you have around him and what those players are capable of. With this group, there's not a lot of supplementary ball handling there. You know, there are guys like Tim Hardaway Jr. who you know can put the ball on the floor and, and make a little move or two. Seth Curry falls into that camp, too, who can be a, a pretty you know good uh, provisional pick and roll player when you need him to be. I think the Mavs proved that the first time around when he was with them. But in terms of his individual development, I hesitate to, I, you know, I, I kind of come down on on the hardened side of this in terms of like, this guy is so gifted and, and not just as a scorer, but his playmaking is so unbelievable. I don't really see a lot of downside in giving him the ball. The caveat to that is at some point you need to invest in that secondary facilitator, you know, a guy who can 
you know, I think Kristaps Porzingis is a, a great spacer, a good pick and roll partner for Luca in a lot of ways. But you need someone who's a little more comfortable passing in that position to help connect the dots in the case that, you know, Luca can thread the needle between the arms of three different defenders. But what if there are four different defenders there? Mm-hmm. Where, in, in terms of, I've been really thinking about the secondary ball handler thing in the sense of the Mavericks don't have anyone right now in the bubble maybe J.J. Barea, who I would consider sort of a north-south runner. What I mean by that is I've been reading like tons of fantasy football coverage, so I keep thinking about like uh, ball handlers in terms of running backs. And Luca's really the only one who likes to go to the cup and can do so without a lot of concern about him you know, losing the ball. Delon Wright's really kind of a side-to-side guy. He's really interesting. They're really, this has really sort of exposed the gaping hole that Jalen Brunson left when, you know, he, he had to have the season ending shoulder surgery because Brunson would at least, you know, kind of be a, a, he would attack the basket to a certain degree. There's not really any other Mavericks ball handlers that I feel that safe, you know, going to the basket. And it's been really, it's been kind of frustrating to watch in the bubble. I think that's a great point on Brunson and, and really about Luca's North South ability specifically. That was one area where coming out of year one, I was kind of curious where he would go because he's a guy who you could see falling in love with his jump shot at times. I mean, I think we still see it in a lot of cases, but over the course of this year, just him proving that he can basically get by almost anyone, get to the basket against almost any team defense in the league. You know, that's the kind of thing that you can really stake your franchise around going forward, even beyond the playmaking, beyond everything else that he does well, the rebounding, you know, really good all around player. But his ability to get inside and maneuver in there and control defenses and manipulate them, it, it really does open up so much for so many of these other guys. So I think the Mavs probably need a little less of the supplementary north-south because he's so good at it. That said, you know there are minutes where he's on the bench, obviously. There are minutes where he's going to need to take a breather. You need somebody who can do that, and Jalen Brunson was able to fill that role to some extent, but maybe that's kind of, you know, if not item A, then item B or C on the Mavs kind of off-season wish list. It's interesting because, you know, our, our Josh Bow at Mavs Moneyball, he's been really focused on why the Mavericks never use Luca as a screener. Uh, Jonathan Charks told me last week he he essentially thinks Luca has no interest in it. But when I which which is a great answer in and of itself, because I think we sometimes underrate what these guys want to do. But then right. I watch the Bucks and I see what happens when the Bucks get uh Giannis in, in essentially a short roll situation. And I can't help but think that the Mavericks with some slightly better personnel would just be devastating doing that one now and again. Like if they had Drogic, uh, that would just be something I'd be very interested in. I don't know if it's something that he wants to do. I just know that I really like watching him off ball because he's so creative and he knows when to move and he knows like he has just a really good feel on the court. And so when he does, when he has the ball in the time, you just don't get to see that aspect of the game. And I think it, it's really tiring. I mean, the guy like watching him get to the basket is like watching a surgeon. And at the same time, I can't wonder if that's not exhausting. Oh, I mean, I think it definitely is. You can see that play out even with him over the course of individual games, just how much of a toll, you know, driving so much, hitting the floor when he's, you know, trying to sell some fouls, absorbing contact on the bumps along the way. That's, that's a full night's work. And I, I'm with you guys in that and, and with Josh's uh, prescription in, in terms of seeing that a little bit more. I think that would be a really fun wrinkle for the offense. It could be in, it can be off ball screening. There are a lot of ways you can work that kind of thing in. He's just like Lucas such a big player for his skill set mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, just being able to bump guys off their spots. It's something where and maybe maybe this hits on uh John Chark's point as well, but like 
one of the reason he may not be interested in is just interested in doing that is he may just not be that familiar with the mechanics of it. it it's one of those mm-hmm. things where even the best passers in the world, you put them in a slightly different context and they lose some of their touch, some of their vision. There's just something about the context of those situations that's so important. And it's, it's, it applies to shooting. It applies to ball handling. Like Luke is clearly a guy who can see the court very well. But maybe there's something about catching the ball on the roll that kind of shortens his vision a little bit. I'm not sure. I mean, it's certainly something the Mavs can experiment with. And and one of the luxuries of having a player like him is the flexibility that gives you. One more Luca question. Do you think he can improve his shooting? I don't know where to fall on this. I mean, he's only 21, but it's just, it's kind of the question. What do you mean by improve his shooting? Do you mean just be a bet, be better than like a 32, 33% three-point shooter? Right. Because that, 32 is bordering on rough. I know the volume, you know, essentially says that the he he's able it works for him, but over the if he's taking nine shots a game, you know, you hit one more, you know, one or two more out of every hundred. I just feel like that's sort of a difference maker. But am I just full of it there? Well, I think it's important to keep his the nature of his attempts in check when you're when you're having this conversation because he's not a guy I don't think at any point in his career barring some some pretty dramatic transformation in the compositions of the rosters around him, who's ever going to be a, a 38, 39, 40% three-point shooter, even though at the same time, he could be a great shooter. And this is where the Harden comparison, I think, is, is pretty helpful, just because James Harden's like a 35, 36% three-point shooter most seasons, and he's one of the best shooters in the world. Like He, he just manufactures very right. difficult shots and hits them in ways that break defenses. And if Luka Doncic can do that, and we've certainly seen a taste of that at times. You know, he's he's not as consistent as Harden. I think, you know, there's there's a question there when we're talking about his durability and his endurance, just of like keeping his legs over the course of a game. And I'm sure that factors into, you know, the very fun Mavericks crunch time conversation that we always come back to when we're talking about this team. But if he can just get to that level, if he can just get to 34, 35%, given the nature of his shots, I think that's a pretty great mark for him. It's really interesting. I'm, I, it's just one of those things we accidentally focus on a lot. I've really enjoyed his play in the bubble past the first Rockets game because I felt like he made that real concerted effort to get to the basket more. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do I have here? Oh, yeah. So Porzingis was really he, – he outperformed all of my expectations. Understanding he was off for 18 months, I was very rough on him early in the season. I just wasn't a fan of his game coming in. And I really felt that he unlocked a different aspect of his abilities when he finally committed to playing five, frankly, out of necessity when Dwight Powell went down. Um, Were you surprised with his season at all? And what are the sort of things you think that he needs to work on to become, you know, the the best player he can be in this sort of system? I think it's the fun thing about his game is you could, you could pick out a lot of different things, you know, for starters, I think you want to see him make that. I'm trying to think of where this jump was in Dirk's career. Maybe it was like a 2005 era kind of transformation where he started flipping screens a little bit more, getting a little sophisticated in the mechanics of screening mm-hmm. uh, in a way that if you're a pick and pop guy, and especially in, in Porzingis's case, a pick and pop guy who can drive. And I think as we've seen in these, in these seating games, he's had some really good hard rolls to the rim where he's finishing over guys that I think are, are really promising. You want to strike that balance. You know, that's one thing I'm, I'm always looking at with these pick and roll partners is who are the guys who who keep defenses guessing in terms of whether they're going to pop a roll because those are so hard over the course of a playoff series for teams to really contend with. And I think Porzingis hedges towards the pop 
by design. I think that's what the Mavericks want him to do. But finding those ways where he can be a little bit more like Dwight Powell, uh, you know, especially in Dwight's absence, I think are pretty helpful. So you you want to see him, you know, work on his role game a little bit. The back to the basket stuff isn't really important, save for the fact that you want him to be able to just turn and face up and mm-hmm. more calmly shoot over smaller players. It doesn't have to be a turnaround fadeaway. Like you're a gigantic person. I think there's there's room for you to kind of carve out your footwork and get that shot without making it so difficult. So there's some things like that. And then, you know, as we were alluding to in kind of the secondary ball handler conversation, some of that facilitating stuff, some of the, you know, making the swing pass uh, on the move, you know, the ability to read the floor in those situations. And then I think maybe the obvious one coming out of this week is, you know, what are they going to do against some of the elite point guards in the league off of ball screens defensively? Because whatever he was doing and whatever the Mavericks were doing against Damian Lillard is clearly not the formula uh, full time. I really have been the thing that I harped on him most of the season was about his complete inability to set a screen. And I feel that by the end of this year, particularly with some of the game, you know, the, the Milwaukee game and the Houston game, I think that they've come a long way with him being able to set screens and do different things. It didn't feel quite so mechanical. It felt a little harder to read. I know some of that's Luca and you know Luca for depending on who's you like setting the screen sometimes it's just this perfunctory thing that's out there and he doesn't really use it <laughs> and they they've gotten better about that I think at, at certain points in the game and it's it's frankly really fascinating to watch because I understand the Mavericks don't want Porzingis to roll that much just due to the fact that like biomechanically the man can't land it's really right. terrifying to watch him jump but he's so like he causes a completely different kind of defensive panic when he rolls down the lane as opposed to Dwight Powell. It's defenses have no idea what to do when those two are both, uh, when Luca's on one side of the lane and Porzingis is on the other on a drive. I mean, it's like what it's, it's really fun to watch in slow motion sometimes. For sure. And I don't mean to keep coming back to the dirt comparison with him, but it's one thing where I think Mavs fans who are used to watching this team for a long time, are going to have to adjust how they look at those pick and rolls in terms of that kind of freak out factor where for years and years and years, it was Dirk's ability to pop and catch and shoot that made the defenses completely panic and just like let JJ Barea walk to the rim. That formula has been inverted now and it's Luka Doncic that's making defenses freak out and they want to make sure they have size on him because if, if their guards have to help in, they're just going to get bowled over on the way to the basket. Right. That naturally is going to look a little bit different. And it's a case where Porzingis doesn't have to make great contact on every screen. You know, it's more about can you get the right angle? Can you just buy a little bit of space to the point where the rest of the defense gets stress tested a little bit? Because the Mavericks, as we've been kind of dancing around this whole conversation, I think their spacing has just been really impeccable this season. And that's a lot of that is a credit to Porzingis and his his willingness to kind of camp out there at times for which he's received some pretty public and unfair criticism, I think. Uh, but it's also about all those other guys who find their spots and fill in and knowing how they kind of fit into their piece of the puzzle. And that's always going to run through Lucas so long as the team looks like this. But that isn't to say Porzingis can't play a, a slightly more active role in, in freeing him up and making those possessions look a little bit easier. We'll be right back with more Rob Mahoney after a quick break. All right, everybody, we're back with Rob Mahoney of TheRinger.com. Such a great website. So before we went to break, you mentioned something about Porzingis and the point guard play and the Mavericks really needing to figure out how to use him and how to essentially, 
you know, maximize him on that side of the floor. But I have kind of a broad-based question that has been bugging me. And I don't go to games. I also don't ask questions with the few times I have because I'm bad at it. But if I could, I would ask Rick Carlisle to please explain to me why they play drop coverage on great shooters. Do you have any idea why the Mavericks scheme is so conservative? I think there's a couple of reasons for it. And to be fair, a lot of teams, and in particular, a lot of the great defenses right now are playing drop. So giving up a lot of threes isn't in itself a damning problem. I think it's one of those things that looks very, very different night to night. And I think plays in a really interesting way into the offensive psychology because you know, take that Portland game, for example, that's an essential game that Portland has to win. If Damian Lillard starts pulling up for those shots and he's a guy who has a lot of, you know, his, his teammates trust him a lot, but if he starts missing those shots, if they start rimming out, if he starts coming up short, things start to look very different for that team very fast. It's one of those things where if you show a team and in particular, you know, these great offensive players, these kinds of wide open opportunities and they don't capitalize on them, there's part of your brain that thinks, oh, they're going to come back. That's going to regress. They're going to start hitting those shots. But there's also part where everyone else on the floor and, and the coaches and everyone on the bench, there's that kind of creeping doubt in their mind. And I think that's part of any team that plays drop coverage is kind of banking to some extent on the idea that this guy's not going to fire away every time down the floor. <laughs> I think that, you know, cl- clearly that idea was put to the test in that particular matchup. But I think it's it's kind of a an interesting thing to bet on, especially in a playoff setting where where tensions are so high and, and we're certainly going to see the Mavs in some of these Clipper matchups deal with some of that. But I, I don't I'm not opposed to it categorically. And especially with someone like Porzingis, who, you know, his strength is so much about putting his size as close to the rim as possible and even obstructing floaters or mid-rangers or what have you. He's he's going to be at a loss the further you take him from a basket from the basket. So using him sure. as more of a Brooke Lopez, I don't have necessarily have a problem with that. I just bet watching that film the next day was something else because Porzingis rarely came above the free throw line. And that, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a, it's just such a good shot for Dame Lillard. And I just, I don't know, it was very, it was very frustrating to watch, but I've been, I've been curious about that all year. I, I, I suppose that that does make sense to me. It also sort of opens up the question that we have been talking about that, frankly, the Mavs roster past their top two players is, not they have a bunch of guys that have played beyond what I thought their capabilities were like Luca's really helped raise all of their floors which is what you would hope for from a superstar but that said it's really you know the some of their defensive problems seem to boil down to the fact that they just don't have very good players to do any of this stuff I mean neither does the, the league is hard on wing dif- defense period but it's just it's something watching these watching these guys struggle like they have in the bubble just seeing the lack of depth and talent uh, around Luca and Porzingis. And so I was wondering if, you know, if you're looking ahead in your crystal ball, do you have any thoughts about like what, are there any players that you think would actually work with the Mavericks in the coming years? Because I'll tell you, I've been looking and I don't really see anybody that I think fits that they should pursue. Yeah. I mean, I haven't, I haven't been scouring the the free agent list lately sure. or anything like that. So I'm, I'm not sure off the top of my head. It's, it's one area where I think you're right. The defensive personnel, especially on the perimeter, is just not great. You know, Luca, just by the nature of his experience, is he's going to be hidden in a lot of matchups. They're going to try to save his energy as much as they can. So a lot falls on a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith, who I think is a pretty pretty good to very good defender who's miscast by having to guard the toughest assignments in the league. And you know, it's it's kind of that way all down the line where Tim Hardaway, who I think is probably pretty passable in that regard of his game 
is all of a sudden asked to, you know, guard a Paul George type. It's so everyone has kind of stepped up from probably Mm -hmm. where they should be in terms of the caliber of player they should be guarding. And that's one area where, you know, if there are any Mavericks who I think disappointed, at least where I thought they could be this season, given how they fit into this team, Dalon Wright was a guy who I thought could have made a bigger impact this year and is, is one of those players who, when you think about, okay, we have this gigantic super talented, you know, position defying point guard. How are we going to fill out our lineup around him? Dalen Wright's one of those kinds of swingy, switchable guys who, you know, should be able to fit into that spot, you know, can be a really good team defender, has shown in the past that he can at least kind of contribute to an offense and, and be creative and find gaps. I haven't seen quite as much of that from him this season. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, but, you know, maybe some of the answer in that regard lies within in terms of if Dalen can be a better player for the Mavs uh, relative to where he was this year. Yeah, it's he's he's he, I've almost I'm almost to the point um and not enough people listen to this podcast where it'll matter but I think they they try to ship him out this offseason. He just has been a square peg in a round hole. Uh and when he plays well, the Mavs win and when he plays poorly, it stands out like a sore thumb and they just need more from a guy like him. Um on you know, let's let's just jump ahead to the bubble and some of the plus. What did you make of the fact of the Mavericks performance. They went three and five over these eight games, including two overtime wins where Luca was, had needed to go supernova for the victory. And then one win against the jazz team that was trying to lose. (laughs) I mean, we touched on some of it already with Porzingis, but I think he's looked incredible, Um, especially on, you know, looking a little, even more mobile, even more agile on those roles, you know, and, and just bold, like, you know, trying, trying some stuff on Hassan Whiteside, for example, who, if nothing else has basically dedicated his life to shot blocking and jumping at things. Um, so I think he's, he's looked really impressive in terms of his fit in the offense and just the shape of everything there. Other than that, I'm trying to think of other things with the Mavs that have really jumped out to me. I think in a lot of ways, they are the team they've been, um, mm-hmm. which is to say, you know, they're going to be an incredible offense against almost any matchup. Defensively, there's some pretty clear problems, especially on the perimeter as we've been talking about. And, you know, they, uh, I think some of it in terms of when you think about how they match up with some of these these other really good teams in the West, a guy like Seth Curry, I think, jumps out as someone who seems even more important to me now than I thought he would be. Just the spacing that he provides, the shooting he provides, like the Mavs' ability to get and keep him on the floor, you know, health permitting, seems pretty crucial to me given where they are and, and the kind of the makeup of the rest of the roster. Well, one more Mavs question, and then I'm going to pivot to some NBA stuff in general. Can they do anything against the Clippers? <laughs> what are your <laughs> expectations for this series? It's really tough, and some of it is, you know, if if your team doesn't have good defensive personnel and the, and the Mavs are in that category, I, I would say they don't even really have a good option to deal with much less, you know, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and Marcus Morris, who kind of gave them the business in those two games against the Knicks earlier in the year, too. Like, they just don't have a lot of size in the way that you need to challenge a team like the Clippers. And then the way that they would contort, you know, we, we've seen, you know, Maxi Kleba, for example, get some minutes on Kawhi Leonard. It's like, okay, that's, you know, he, he can move his feet for a big. Like, that's not a terrible option to have if you're a team like the Mavs. But then you do that, and then all of a sudden, you know, if, if Montrez Harrell, for example, is able to be a factor in this series, which... I think is a bit of a question, just given the fact that he's kind of just getting back into, you know, with the team and into shape after dealing with some personal tragedy. But Maxie's a guy who you would want to defend someone like that. And so there's a lot of this pivoting that has to happen for the Mavs to just square up with the Clippers that I, I worry a lot about their ability to, to kind of deal with that matchup. But the, I mean, that said, 
Rick Carlisle is one of the best in the game in terms of closing the gap between his team and other great teams, you know, rel- you know, irrespective of their talent level, like he's going to find something. The question is what that something is when you have a guy in Kawhi Leonard who basically gets whatever he wants, whenever he wants it. See, and that, that's kind of the conspiracy theorist in me wonders if Rick came into the bubble accepting the Clippers as a fact of life mm. because there were in, they did not show very much anywhere against the Clippers. I just found this stat uh, online. It, it, the Mavs best, most used lineup of that they have and their five man lineup data is wild just because they've had such injuries. Right. Is, is, is Luca Porzingis, Maxi, Dorian Finney Smith. And um, now it's a, Let's see here. They're, they just have some very odd statistical lineup data. And, you know, with, with Seth Curry not available for that one Clippers game, he's been a part of a lot of their best lineups. I feel like at a certain point, Rick was holding his cards so close to the chest that he he would – I'm, I'm thinking of the, the Philadelphia uh, Lakers series where the, the first game Iverson just came out and went nuts, and then, then the Lakers rolled them the next four. Like, I wonder if the Mavericks <laughs> are just going to throw the kitchen sink out at the first game and see what happens. Because that it, they just didn't show much, and those games were all. I've I've gone back and looked at the data from all three games. They were weird games. It it was Luca. Luca had never seen anything like those two, and and Paul and Kawhi before, and he was just getting picked left and right. Some of the sloppiest games. Like I'm very interested to see how it plays out because I think it'll be a good measuring stick. But the end result, and and Chris Ryan and Chris Ryan, Chris Vernon and Kevin O'Connor of the Ringer talked about this on on their pod today about how this. This uh, series could inadvertently start up this conversation about whether Luca can play the way he wants in the playoffs. And I just I don't know how much there is to take away from the Mavs Clippers other than the Mavericks are better than the Clippers. Or, I'm sorry, the Clippers are better than the Mavericks. <laughs> like that that's kind of the, the the gist. It seems very basic and simple, but you know, they're the Clippers are an incredible basketball team when they when they're humming along. Yeah, and and I mean, look at what they've done in the bubble where. You know, even defense aside, we're talking about a team that has two of the best perimeter defenders. I guess three, if you if you throw Patrick Beverly into that conversation again, depending on his health, three of the best perimeter defenders in the world. Oh, and they were also the third best offense in the bubble, barely having their team together. Guys constantly coming and going for various reasons, in and out of the lineup because of injuries. They're they're tough, and mm-hmm. it, I think I think you're right to look at this as a measuring stick kind of series. I can I'm already exhausted by the narrative you <laughs> described about Luka Doncic, but. I mean, I still, you know, even given everything we've said, I still see this as a six-game series. I still see this as something where the Mavs are going to get their shots in, whether it's right off the bat, as you described, whether it's making some adjustments along the way. And this is one area where I think the, the drop coverage conversation works into this too, just because if if I've learned anything in watching Rick Carlisle over the years with the Mavericks and otherwise – like he's going to change so many things in terms of the way the team operates from series to series. And especially when his team is the underdog, I wouldn't get too worked up over how the Mavs look and drop throughout the regular season, because so much of that is how do we get through the year in one piece? You know, how do we sure. have a, a functional defense? How do we keep Chris Epps, Porzingis healthy? How do we get to the finish line to the point where we can really start teching this thing out? And, you know, that's where Carlisle makes his money in a lot of ways. That's where, you know, the Mavericks have, have really been able to get the best of some teams that really should have been beating them pretty soundly in certain playoff series. I, I think they're going to get their shots in over the course of this thing. It's just that, as you mentioned, like a team like the Clippers with that much talent, with that much depth, to be honest with you, 
it is it was really kind of inevitable in a series like this. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how I feel. Well, before I let you go, I got a few NBA based questions, broader stuff that I wanted to get your take on. So have you liked the bubble and do you have any sort of strong feelings about these various options in, in, in uh, future seasons, like a mid season tournament or really adapting this, this play in uh, concept for the eighth seed? What does it mean to like the bubble? Have you enjoyed the quality of basketball and felt that it was superior product than what we have normally would get in the March, April range of a normal season? I think the quality has been really great. And for the most part, I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised by the fact that we haven't seen that many. And I, I, I hesitate to say this out loud, that many serious injuries happen in the bubble. It was something that in talking to people around the league, I was very worried about the, the COVID-19 coronavirus aspect of it and, and potential for outbreak there. Almost everyone I talked to was about you know soft tissue injury, and th- that's what they were concerned about, ramping their guys up too quickly, too soon. And I think the coaches have done a pretty good job, and certainly their medical staffs in tandem with them, not pushing guys too hard, too fast, just in terms of around the league. So that's been nice, just that we've, we've seen really good, especially offensive basketball and there have been a couple big injuries along the way, but I think fewer than I may have expected. And teams look really polished. Like, I think that's part of the reason why we're having this conversation about, you know, whether it's the Lakers or the Bucks, these teams who have been the top of the league all season, who all of a sudden their half-court offenses are looking a little bit shaky. I'm not sure how much of that is them just kind of, you know, slow playing some of these games or whatnot. But part of the reason that conversation is interesting is because everyone else seems to be on the come up a little bit. You know, you have the Rockets, full steam ahead you have the nuggets who are getting guys back and starting to look really good with michael porter jr you have teams like the raptors who are just ferocious and no one would want to see in a series in the celtics so you know there, there are teams all over the place that, that are looking really impressive that are looking really together in a way that you know basketball is such a chemistry-based sport these guys you know theoretically have not been playing with each other for months who's to say <laughs> as to whether that was happening or not i will neither confirm nor deny that that may have been happening uh but just that they've come out and looked, it looks like they're picking up where they left off. And, you know, with, while also getting back some guys like a Yusuf Nurkic, who, you know, was out for the season previously, it's been, the quality of basketball, I think has been really strong. That's, that's kind of where I am too. I've really enjoyed it. And it's not just because I needed something to watch <laughs> other than Netflix. Um, so do you have a seer, like a first round series or a potential you know, later in the playoff series that you're really anticipating watching? I mean, I think there's a lot. And, you know, it, it's really a bummer that Russell Westbrook seems to be, you know, pretty significantly injured at the start of this series with the Rockets and the Thunder. You know, a, a quad strain is nothing to to gloss over because if, if he were healthy and just the dynamics of, of the history there, the way those teams match up, like that was the one I was really watching. And I still will be, certainly. But it's just more interesting with Russell Westbrook as a part of it. I think the first round overall is probably going to be a little light on intrigue. You know, there are, there are a couple matchups that could kind of go the distance or you could at least, you know, put up some challenges for, for the top seeded teams. But overall, I think it, it, we're going to be kind of doing some quick business here. And then we get to the real stuff. You know, the second round is probably my favorite part of the playoffs overall. It's just so meaty. You have so many games to go through and all the matchups start making a lot more sense in terms of being able to kind of contest each other. There's something about the, the, the magic of the opening weekend and like four games every day for, you know, this, that Saturday and Sunday, but there's no question that the second round is where the tactics and the talent start getting pretty real. And I think that's where this year things are going to start getting really interesting where you're looking at the bucks against teams like the Raptors and the Celtics, where you're looking at that nuggets Clippers matchup, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. I, I think there's, there's a lot to look forward to. 
two more things. So I was reading through a number of your stories in anticipation of talking to you today, and it's funny because I didn't actually ask you about any of them. But what <laughs> piece, what piece did you most enjoy working on this year, or did you learn the most as you were, you know, putting it together? I feel like I really enjoyed doing stories where you get to know a team a little bit better, and so the two of those that I would say I did for the Ringer this year that I that I most enjoyed. I just did one this that came out this week on Robert Covington and the Rockets and Love his journey one. there. I appreciate that. Uh, it was really fun to do, learning a lot about Cove and his story, but also you know what the Rockets have done with the G League over the years, how they've kind of experimented, and how all of this has really been a long time coming in terms of where they've been. That one was really fun to do. And also a story I did earlier, I think it was in, released in January, on the Pacers, who have just quietly kind of ch- you know hummed along and been one of the more successful franchises in the NBA over the last 30 years in terms of just never failing to make the playoffs. I think there's a really natural tendency to scoff at some of these, especially smaller market teams who have, you know, not necessarily more modest goals, but who are willing to accept a certain level of, of competitive, a a certain level of competition. They pride themselves on consistency on a certain kind of culture and learning a little bit more about what goes on in Indiana, what they value and why. I, that was a really rewarding story just in terms of learning more about the mechanics of a basketball franchise uh, for me. I'm going to go find those both and link them back in the post because I I read the Cub one, but I don't think I got to the Pacers one. Or I probably did back in the season, but it's been five <laughs> months since the season, so it's been a while. It's been a long time. Well, before I let you get out of here, I have to tell a quick story because <laughs> as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, my first riding gig was with the two-man game with Rob. And the the, the fun part about the two-man game, uh, particularly with our game recaps, was the format. It was a style called The Difference, where essentially you would boil down, uh, depending on how many points the team won or lost by, that is how you would, that was how many essentially bullet points you would get to write about the game. It was a really interesting challenge in that if there were some games where there's a 50, I remember one game, I poor guy, I can't remember who had to do it, had to do like a 50 point recap. It was absurd. But then when you're watching a really great game and it's a one point victory, you have to really figure out how to, how to write as concisely and as in-depth as possible in that one point where you're really only getting about maybe 200 words before you close out. So it was a lot of fun to write. Well, when I first started writing, I just wanted to do something. I'm still not a, a great writer, but I've gotten better at, at, at at least controlling written ticks. And so for my first uh, one that I turned in, I asked for feedback from Rob. And uh, one of the bullet points essentially said something along the lines of it was a tale of two halves. And you gave me a piece of feedback, which has stuck with me for nearly 10 years. <laughs> and, and it was, don't do this all. <laughs> It was don't do this. And it's stuck with me. And as I've edited, you know, I'm I'm now editor in chief of which I shouldn't be, but let's not tell anyone of MavsMoneyball.com. And as I, you know, attempt to give people feedback, because I mean, I don't really want to call it editing. It's it's feedback on writing. That's one of those things that stuck with me, which has always been very simple. Don't overwrite, don't use tropes, and actually self-edit a little bit. And and that's more or less the advice that you gave me early on. And it's really been uh, sound because most people would agree that I've talked to, like you're probably, uh, a lot of people will put you in like the top three in terms of technical writing ability in the sense of you say a lot with a little and it's why people keep coming back to read you. So I just wanted to, to bring that up because it made me laugh. Well, I'm glad you remember that as a constructive moment and not a what an asshole moment because I could no, I could have seen that I could see that going both ways. 
it th- that's what made it so funny though because i had never really talked to you before and we're all communicating over writing and that's it just and it just it stuck with me and that's that's the sort of thing because just because you have the ability to write you know 2000 words doesn't mean you should and it's it's just one of those things that i think about every now and again when i'm writing uh or when i'm editing you know somebody turns in a 3000 word piece and it's like oh my gosh what are we doing here <laughs> um before we get out of here do you have anything you want to plug i know you're the new you're a new host on uh, NBA Group Chat on the Ringer.com, which is a podcast I enjoy. Do you have anything else coming up that you want to plug? No, thank you for that. I mean, just just check out Group Chat on Wednesdays. Check out the Ringer.com. Other, I mean, those are probably the best ways to follow me. I don't, I don't do too much tweeting these days, but you can follow me at Rob Mahoney if you want to do that. Yeah, uh, well, that's where we see your story. So I think that's good advice. Uh, well, again, thank you for coming on. Be sure to keep Jonathan Sharks in check. That man <laughs> needs. Yeah, that man has an attitude. No, I love sharks. I love you guys' work. I appreciate uh, everything you guys do. And thank you very much for coming on. Thanks, Kirk. All right, this has been Kirk Henderson and Rob Mahoney. This has been Kirk, Your Enthusiasm. Thanks for your time, guys.